Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Biscalia, professor of medicine at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And this month, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Joseph L. Munzer, who is the Peter Cotton Professor of Medicine and Endoscopic Innovation at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And Joe is a longtime colleague and friend of mine, and he's an expert in post-ERCP pancreatitis, among other things. And this month, we're talking about post-ERCP pancreatitis. So, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I, you know, it's, um, I was reading uh, a commentary in Gastro, actually, just last night, ironically, in the September issue of Gastro. And it was a commentary on um, uh, NSAIDs for posterior speed pancreatitis and some of the enormous uh, price hikes that we've seen with uh, some of these medicines over the years that were generic and started off being very cheap and become ultra expensive. And what struck me in this this commentary, which was really nicely written by our colleagues at Hopkins, um, was that it's almost, I think it's over a decade since your landmark paper that you published in New England Journal of Medicine on using indomethacin for posterior speed pancreatitis. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so it's been a minute. It's it's crazy that time is, <laughs> that time is flying. Um, and, you know, to have the distinction of being an quote unquote expert in posterior speed pancreatitis is a little bit, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, hopefully I know a little bit about it and how to prevent it. But but I certainly have had my fair share of cases, uh, as you know, many of our uh, ERCP colleagues have. And, and so it's still you know, a major problem in clinical practice. And it's probably the most important iatrogenic complication that I deal with in my practice on a regular basis. Um, but the endomethacin piece has been really interesting. And, and to, to your point, the, the, the skyrocketing rocketing cost of this medication is a really sort of interesting and perplexing story. Uh, you may know that we sort of went through the sort of the background and the process of how that happened in a paper that we published in, in JAMA Internal Medicine a mm-hmm. couple of years ago. But a medication that was literally costing less than ten dollars in 2012, before uh, before we published our study, now can cost some patients in excess of five thousand dollars. Believe it or not, and because of some unique elements to endomethacin, uh, in terms of not having um, sort of FDA approval and and some other factors related to ERCP being an outpatient procedure that's actually done in a hospital setting, which affects pricing of the medication. Um, a lot of times insurers uh, are not covering it. So the, the biggest tragedy is that that price hike is falling on the patient's lap. So something that was intended to hopefully be massively beneficial to the ERSP community has uh, demonstrated a couple at least of unintended consequences, one of which is this sort of skyrocketing price. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, have you ever I don't want to get too off topic because I have so many questions to ask you. But have you ever had a patient call you with a bill after an ERCP and say, hey, what is what is this enormous charge for? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or bring in their bring in their bill. Um, mm-hmm. This is happening with increasing frequency. And I have colleagues, as, as you probably do, John, all over the country that um, uh, will email me or sort of get in touch with me about this problem. And, and now there's an increasing um, interest in sort of finding a way around this problem. I, I will say, um, you know, uh, again, without getting too off topic, I think there's a movement to, to try to rectify this problem. And, and drug pricing is not unique to, right. to ERCP, right? This is right. sort of a national um, federal issue, but um, but um, there is a movement to start looking at alternatives like compounding um, or using diclofenac, and, and we'll get into this, but but there's mm-hmm. solid evidence to support the use of diclofenac mm-hmm. uh, suppositories for preventing post-ERCP pancreatitis, which has not been traditionally available in the United States, and that's why dicl- uh, endomethacin has been our go-to. Yeah. But but one way or another, we have to you know sort of put our heads together and solve this problem because it's 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 a real issue and it affects patients in a very meaningful way. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up and let's talk about um, how common of a problem is this. Um, tell yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, right. So every every article you read on post ERCP pancreatitis in the medical literature starts with sort of the standard ERCP is the most common and potentially dangerous complication of ERCP, and and that absolutely remains the case in 2022. Um, so uh, you know, depending on the risk profile of the patient and the procedure, um, you know, can range from anywhere in the reported literature between, you know, one or 2% up to up to 15 or 20% in particularly high risk cases and so forth. Um, but just from a sort of day to day sort of clinical practice point of view, it's still uh, not only in terms of its frequency, but in terms of the bandwidth it occupies. And, you know, and I do a lot of different, you know, I have a wide portfolio of interventional endoscopic procedures, there's no complication that um, affects my sort of practice and, and, you know, my quality of life and my psychology more than posterior speed pancreatitis. Because as you know, um, uh, acute pancreatitis in general, and posterior speed pancreatitis in particular, in its full sort of, um, you know, magnitude, so to speak, is a really, really impressive thing that, um, that can, you know, occasionally result in serious life-threatening complications and prolonged hospitalization and so forth. But uh, but to just to get back to the original question, I think if a patient is a you know has very few pre-procedural risk factors for post-ERCP pancreatitis and straightforward procedure, I think you're safe in quoting them a you know a two to five percent risk. But I think in a patient that's at high risk, like you know somebody with recurrent acute pancreatitis or somebody that requires a pancreatic intervention, um, that risk can be quoted up to fifteen percent easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to indomethacin um, and NSAIDs in general. Um, one question that comes up a lot with my colleagues is, uh, unless there's any major contraindication to an NSAID or something like that, a severe, an allergy, or uh, actually wanted to get your thoughts on renal dysfunction, um, should we be giving it to everybody that comes in for an ERCP and again, we can talk about prices in a second and alternatives like diclofenac, but should we be giving rectal NSAIDs to everybody who comes in for an ERCP regardless of how invasive the procedure is? In other words, is it just a biliary stone and somebody with a high bilirubin, or are we talking about somebody who's coming in to do endotherapy for recurrent pancreatitis or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a, you know, this is obviously a really important question and, and I get this a lot. Um, 
Um, and it's, you know, it's front and center on people's minds in terms of, you know, the day-to-day -day practicalities of how do you, you know, how do you, uh, how do you implement into medicine in your clinical practice? And so, so first of all, there is a cohort of patients who are basically going to be at negligible risk for post-therapy pancreatitis, right? So these are the patients we see often who have a pre-existing biliary sphincterotomy in whom you're doing a routine stent exchange, um, or patients who, for whatever reason, um, have had multiple ERSPs in the past and have proven that they don't have the you know, the whatever it is, the phenotype, the, the genomics to develop posterior SP pancreatitis, patients with really heavily calcified um, uh, pancreas as a result of chronic pancreatitis, even though, you know, certainly we see pancreatitis, acute flare-ups after ERSP mm -hmm. from time to time. But so in those co cohorts of patients in whom you judge the risk of posterior SP pancreatitis is negligible, then, you know, there probably isn't a solid rationale to give that medication routinely, right? Because the risk is extremely low. And so even though it's safe, um, you know, you never know, there are always some theoretical sort of adverse events related with, related uh, with, you know, delivering that medication. And of course the cost piece is now front and center in our calculus. But beyond that, you know, the patients that you would call sort of average risk, you know, to your point, a, a, a bile duct stone with that is, um, you know, a little bit more of a difficult cannulation, mm -hmm. or even a patient at the beginning of the procedure in whom you don't know how hard mm -hmm. the, the cannulation is going to be. And of course, the high-risk patients are that third cohort. So I think there's agreement that in high-risk cases, the, the risk-benefit ratio is sort of unequivocal. It's indicated the evidence, including our paper um, from 2012, supports that um, mm -hmm. with a strong level of evidence. And I think the question has been uh, over the last few years, whether there's value in sort of the low to average risk patients. So not negligible risk. So they have some risk for post-GSP pancreatitis, but it's not terribly high. Mm -hmm. And I think in aggregate nowadays, the literature would support that, um, that there is benefit and that the risk benefit ratio is favorable in that sort of average risk cohort. There's several lines of research that support this and without getting into the detail, I think the European Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy when they issued their guideline on this as far back as 2010, recommending rectal NSAIDs basically to everybody undergoing ERSP, I think they had it right. And I think that concept continues to be correct. Um, of course, you know, I, I, you know, I, I give a lot of talks on this and, and I always say I can give very cogent evidence-based arguments to give it to anybody at risk for post-HP pancreatitis, but I'm being in full disclosure, this cost piece, I think has changed. Yeah, that's a changed a lot because when you when your paper first came out and uh, I, you know, and the, in the years after that, you know, 13, 14, 15, it, uh, my, my philosophy was why not? Yeah. Why not give it? Uh, it was $20 at our institution. Uh, at the time, I remember, and why not give it? But that's clearly changed. Yeah, th there's no doubt about that. And I think that sort of factors into the calculus. I will just sort of backtrack for a second and say, you know, there are such, there are low risk situations. And, and right, I think we all agree that a single dose of rectal endomethacin is very unlikely to produce harm if you're, even if you're remotely thoughtful about patient selection, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, in fairness, endomethacin is considered from sort of pharmacodynamics and a renal physiology point of view to be, you know, among the most potent NSAIDs. So, you know, if, if you talk to a nephrologist, you know, they may sort of um, question how dismissive, so to speak, we are about, ah, it's just one dose. So, so there are situations in which yeah. there's no doubt that you can cause harm. And so that's an important consideration. So as a specific example, let's say I do an ERCP 
in, uh, in an elderly patient um, with acinylcholangitis and their creatinine is, you know, 1.1 on presentation. Um, and you know, in an elderly person, 1.1 probably does reflect some element of renal dysfunction and it's not a difficult cannulation and there's no reason to suspect that they're particularly high risk. That right. situation, which I might cost aside, I might just withhold it yeah. because the patient's sick. To some extent, you could argue that the writing's on the wall. Even if you decompress them, there's a chance that the sepsis syndrome is going to sort of do what, whatever it does. And then next thing you know, the endomethacin is going to be implicated in the acute kidney injury. And yeah, so forth. I've you know, had that happen. I've right? had that and, happen. And, yeah. and, and since in that situation, you've judged that the benefit is not you know, super high given the, the yeah. low risk of posterior speed pancreatitis, those are nuanced situations in which I might actively sort of withhold it yeah. uh, because of those factors. But generally speaking, you know, until this cost uh, um, problem uh, started to, uh, to manifest in clinical practice, I was of the same philosophy as you, which is, you know, the risk benefit ratio is often very favorable and, um, and, you know, always err on the side of giving it. One thing that I always question is when I'm doing an ERCP in a pediatric patient, uh, say, and I'm not talking about, you know, a child who's two or three, let's just say a child who's 12 or 13 who comes in with stones. Um, have you given it in that scenario and do you reduce the dose and what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, so um, the, the answer is yes. I uh, uh, would often give it in that scenario. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the size of the patient and so forth. Um, and again, just keeping in mind that none of this is evidence-based, right? right, there, right. there are some observational data to support the use of rectal NSAIDs in this context in children, but, um, but obviously that evidence base is very different than the, than the evidence base we use, you know, we employ in the adult population. But having said that, um, you know, I think if it's a younger, younger kid who is, you know, the size of many of our, you know, uh, adult adults, patients, yeah. you know, then, then to me, it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't really sort of think twice about it, but as they get younger and as they get smaller, um, I would still give it, but I tend to dose reduce. And, yeah. and by, by, that's a fancy word for just saying, give half the dose, right? Yeah. One so versus might, two. Yeah, I might give I might give 50 milligrams right. um, uh, in a younger kid. But but to your point, when they're really little, um, you know, like, you know, occasionally, we'll, as you know, we'll do an ERSP in a one right. or two year old. And I'm not I'm not sure what the right answer there yeah. is. I think that situation in which I, 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 I it would really have to be a very difficult cannulation or a difficult cannulation followed by a pre-cut sphincterotomy to get right. access. And in that situation, I might, you know, I might think about giving yeah. Um, do you, do you ever start a case, Joe, and, um, and decide halfway through the case that you're going to give indomethacin or is it something that you typically give right up front? Um, how right. do you usually in your own practice? Yeah. So, um, just in terms of the evidence, right. The evidence is split, right. You know, our indomethacin RCT, um, uh, we gave it routinely at the end of the procedure and there are several, uh, randomized control trials that um, that gave the medication programmatically before the procedure. Um, and so generally speaking, both approaches appear to work. Um, there's only been one head-to-head -head comparison that suggested that giving it pre-procedurally is probably uh, more effective. Uh, the problem is that that sort of knowing programmatically, you know, when the next case is going to go, you know, when the patient is uh, going to actually, you know, be 
in the height of the risk period, which is, you know, you would imagine the cannulation is a little hard to predict in clinical practice. And so to give it programmatically before the procedure is a little challenging for me because every once in a while you end up with a duodenal stricture and it takes you 45 or 50 minutes before you even start the ERSP, right? Or every once in a while, the case sort of gets delayed for any, for one of many different right. reasons. And, um, and so same, if you give it after the procedure, there are situations in which you spend a long time cannulating. There's a lot of risk related to that. And then you spend a lot of time, you know, getting rid of a, you know, sort of extracting a larger fragmenting, extracting a large bile stone. And if you give it systematically after the procedure, you're risking perhaps giving it a little bit too late. Right. You know, so, the, so the way, you know, the way I sort of do it in my practice is almost a compromise of both is I give it routinely at the time of cannulation. Okay. And so that that's, you would imagine when the when the risk window begins, and so if you try to give it around the time of cannulation, hopefully you will, um, you know, it'll be in the system when you when yeah. it's most likely to be beneficial. Uh, yeah. But I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think yeah. you know, giving it before is probably okay. Giving it after is okay in the large majority of cases. I just sort of split the difference. Okay, I just want to pause for one second and thank our sponsor, as always, Cook Medical, who sponsors this podcast series, and uh, we're appreciative for their support and uh, what they do for endoscopy. So thank you very much, Cook. Um, Man, I have so many questions to ask you, and this podcast just isn't long enough to go through all the things I want to ask you. But before we get off uh, NSAIDs, just, you know, go back to diclofenac without you know, and uh, going on, I don't want to go on forever on this, just because I want to have so many other things high yield, I want to ask you, but, you know, a question that comes up is other NSAIDs, you know, other NSAIDs, other routes of administration. I mean, I think there was a time where people were giving, you know, IV Toradol, or maybe not IV, but some non-enteral route of Toradol uh, during procedures. So can you tell us what's the latest there? Yeah, you know, so there there are a lot of st- scattered studies in the literature on non-rectal administration of uh, diclofenac endomethacin and on non-diclofenac endomethacin forms of NSAIDs, right? And so, you know, it's it's um, generally speaking, uh, based on the available evidence, diclofenac appears to be essentially equivalent to. Uh, endomethacin, rectal diclofenac and rectal endomethacin, and mm-hmm. that makes sense because pharmaco uh, kinetically and mm-hmm. pharmacodynamically, they, they tend to behave very similarly. And so in vitro studies suggest that they're about the same and, and clinically in the randomized controlled trials, we've seen that. So I think, that, and in fact, there are some, uh, there are some data to suggest that, or at least network meta-analyses to suggest that diclofenac may even be a little bit better. Um, but, you know, of course that, you know, the, there are limitations to that extrapolation, but nevertheless, I think those two things are easily interchangeable in clinical practice, provided that, you know, you can, um, verify that the, that the source of the, of the medication, verify that they've done the appropriate potency testing and so on and so forth. Now, once you get outside of rectal diclofenac, rectal endomethacin, then, um, there's really no solid evidence base to support it. Now, hypoth, you know, sort of conceptually, um, if you were to dose oral NSAIDs the right way and achieve the same serum concentration, could it work? I guess it's plausible, but I don't think we should necessarily discount the unique aspects of, of uh, rectal NSAID administration. Yeah. Uh, one of which is that, um, is that, you know, in that situation, the uh, time to peak plasma concentration appears to be quicker. Um, you uh, avoid first pass metabolism for a majority of the drug. 
And also there's a hypothesis and, you know, of course, none of this is, has been proven as of yet, but there's a hypothesis that there's something about the rectal microbiome mm -hmm. that alters um, NSAID disposition in some way. And so, you, okay. you know, you end up with a different sort of, um, you different sort of um, active uh, product in the circulation. But the bottom line is, you know, what we try to do is follow clinical trial data. Mm -hmm. And there are really no clinical trial data to support the use of any NSAID other than diclofenac and indomethacin and any NSAID that's not delivered via the rectal route. Now, is that because the studies have not been super well done and there's type two statistical error and things along those lines, or is it because they don't work by any other route? We don't know the answer to that. Um, but, but, you know, if you want to be, if you want to, you know, maximize the likelihood of the medication working, then it's really got to be rectal. It's got to be endomethacin or diclofenac. Got it. Got it. Okay. Let's go in a different direction for a moment and talk a little bit about pancreatic stents. And I am well aware that we can spend an entire podcast talking about pancreatic stents and their use in the prevention of posterior speed pancreatitis. But um, could you give the audience uh, some, uh, a couple of general guidelines in pancreatic stent placement for uh, posterior speed pancreatitis? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I guess the first thing I'll, I'll say about this is that um, perhaps one of the, the sort of most um, important and distressing to me unintended consequences, the consequences of um, sort of the rectal NSAIDs era has been this sort of um, belief that uh, as long as patients get rectal NSAIDs, they may not need a prophylactic pancreatic stent. Um, and uh, as a result, there's been what appears to be a, a sort of widespread abandonment of the <laughs> prophylactic pancreatic stent. And, um, and that is a problem um, because um, as of, and, and you may know, John, that we're in the, in toward the tail end of a large scale randomized control trial, trying to answer this very question. And so we'll have some more clarity, but on the basis of a lot of available evidence, there's no uh, question that prophylactic pancreatic stenting is effective uh, for preventing posterior speed pancreatitis. And importantly, uh, at least the available evidence, and while we all have anecdotes to the contrary, but the available evidence suggests that um, uh, the most important benefit of prophylactic stenting is that it profoundly reduces the risk of severe and necrotizing pancreatitis, right? And so I think it's really important to be clear with practicing endospis that, that this should be, prophylactic stenting should be part and parcel of a sort of comprehensive approach to reducing the risk of posterior speed pancreatitis in high-risk patients, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so, you know, of course, you know, we randomize a lot of patients in our, in our clinical trial and, and those patients are randomized to either stent or no stent, but outside of the clinical trial in a patient that's high risk for posterior speed pancreatitis, I uniformly place a prophylactic stent in addition to rectal NSAIDs. There are very few situations in which I feel like giving rectal NSAIDs obviates or eliminates the need for prophylactic stenting mm -hmm. clinical practice. And that's something I've, I've been observing less and less of. And I think it's a real problem. And I think patients mm -hmm. are suffering as a consequence mm -hmm. of that. Have you ever had a situation um, in which the procedure was very high risk, say because of difficult cannulation, which resulted in numerous attempts and then eventually, let's say, a pre-cut and um, you finally get into the bile duct and you're very concerned about posterior speed pancreatitis 
And one of the thought that has gone thoughts that has gone through my head over the years, and I will admit this this happened more often when we were, when we were doing sphincter voting manometry and things like that. However, um, one of the thoughts that's gone through my head is is am I creating harm by trying now to get into the pancreas yeah. simply to place that pancreatic stent, and should I avoid it not to you know yeah. muck up the papilla any longer? What do you think about that? Right, and yeah, so we're, you're getting at is the concept of you know do we chase the pancreas? So, yeah, exactly, right? exactly. And so it's 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 a little less of a question if in the process of your difficult cannulation you've achieved pancreatic wire access, you're already there. And so at that point in time, you place a prophylactic stent and it's, it's not as much of a dilemma, Different story. Yeah. A, a dilemma intellectually. And so the, so, um, so the question is in a different context, when you finally achieve your clinical or endoscopic objective, do you then, is it worth the additional time and effort and risk of trying to access pan, the pancreas specifically for stent placement? For stent placement? And so I'm of the philosophy and, and, you know, and, and this is a really good question. So for example, uh, many of our international colleagues would say there's no rationale for chasing the pancreas, right? Mm -hmm. If you're there, you do it. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the United States, it's more split, but I'm of the rationale is that, you know, especially after you've cut your biliary sphincterotomy, if the pancreatic orifice is light or at that point in time, the pancreatic orifice is likely to be more exposed. You're likely to achieving pancreatic access is a little bit higher. So I'm of the philosophy that it is worth chasing the pancreatic duct for prophylactic stent placement outside even of the context of sphincter voting dysfunction, because I think there's edema there. And I think if you can efficiently and effectively, you know, wedge open the pancreatic orifice, um, there's likely benefit in that. But prophylactic stenting in general um, is a balance, right? Because you know, the more attempts at getting into the pancreas, the more harm you're doing. And there's almost certainly a point of diminishing returns after which persevering at trying to gain pancreatic access is causing more harm than good, right. especially if you ultimately are unsuccessful. And nobody knows what that balance looks like. And it's different for every person. But, uh, but sort of to specifically answer your question, I personally, in the context you pr presented, I personally would try to gain pancreatic access for the purpose of placing a prophylactic stent. Um, but of course, at some point when I judge, and again, this, there's no, this is not evidence-based. It's just sort mm -hmm. of a, a value judgment that, that, you know, um, that I am thinking of during the procedure. When I get to the point where I think, listen, we are likely causing more harm than good at this point, I would abort. So I wouldn't. So I think, I think, you know, the concept that, oh, I place prophylactic stents in 95% of my high-risk patients you know, I think that dogmatic approach is likely causing more harm than good. Right. I think there's going to be a failure rate. And I think you just have to be responsible and thoughtful about, you know, when you're, you're likely exceeding the benefit of the, of the intervention. Okay. And real quick, what uh, types of stents, generally speaking, should we be placing? Yeah, I mean, as, as you well know, um, there's there, there's no evidence to clearly support that one stent type or length um, is superior to any other. Um, you know, I actually came up in training. I know you said real briefly, so I probably shouldn't start with <laughs> my training background. But, um, but you know, for a long time, I placed short five friend stents because yeah. they're more likely to migrate and so forth. And over the years, and again, not evidence-based, but, but based on my sort of you know, uh, um, uh, high volume experience doing this, I am personally more comfortable with longer stents now. So I still use a five French, five, or French. Four, five French or four French. I typically wouldn't switch out to an 018 wire mm -hmm. just to get a three French. Three French right. Exactly. Although, although there are a lot of people who believe in that uh, strongly, but you know, uh, my approach is a four French or a five French. And if I can, 
Now, I wouldn't spend five minutes battling with an answer, right? Uh, you know, or I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go above and beyond. But if the wire goes seamlessly deep into the pancreas, mm -hmm. my preference is to is to um, is to place the stent into the body even potentially to the tail. Uh, just as a general principle, one thing that we all teach our fellows is that uh, whether you leave it short or long um, is less important than making sure that you don't leave it right at the genu mm -hmm. and make sure you don't leave it into a side branch. Yeah. So, so you got to avoid that area, but short or long, I think it's, it's dealer's choice, although my yeah. preference is long. Yeah, and, that's, and that really highlights the importance of you need to have a wire, your wire in a good position you know, far enough out um, so that you're comfortable with where that uh, that end of that stent lays within the pancreatic duct. Yeah, exactly. And and to me, just very briefly, the rationale for a longer stent is I just worry that if, if a patient is in the throes of, you know, what is a predicted severe acute pancreatitis, um, and, you know, I just worry that a, that a, you know, three or five centimeter stent is going to migrate out too soon. Mm -hmm. um, and I also sort of part of my thought process is if God forbid they develop necrosis, um, it'd be nice to have, you know, access to that, to that part of the pancreas that might end up being disconnected. So yeah, that's very, very interesting. It. Very interesting. Um, let's talk about IV fluids. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff over the past five, seven years about IV fluid management um, in the prevention of posterior speed pancreatitis. What should we, uh, in a high-risk patient um, or a moderate to high-risk patient that we think is likely to have posterior speed pancreatitis, but they haven't woken up from the procedure yet, or let's say we're mid-procedure and we know it's, you know, what should we be doing with fluids? Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you well know, fluids and acute pancreatitis are actually getting progressively more controversial. You know, we are all taught that IV fluids are the quote-unquote cornerstone and that you flood them to the, you know, to the point of pulmonary edema and if necessary beyond, because it's a lot easier to deal with right. total body volume overload than it is to deal with pancreatic necrosis. And, and so traditionally my approach has been the only thing that I really try to avoid is abdominal compartment syndrome. That's when I start to pump the brakes, generally speaking. <laughs> um, but, you know, now with, you know, with the publication or the reporting of the waterfall trial data and so forth, you know, I think, you know, we have to sort of rethink this maximally aggressive approach. And if for posterior speed pancreatitis in particular, it's even a little bit more challenging because um, uh, most of the published literature um, has studied um, bolus followed by a continuous eight hour infusion, which of course is very difficult to operationalize in the United States where we right routinely sort of admit high-risk patients, right? So, so we're still awaiting and, and, you know, hopefully this will, you know, be on the horizon pretty soon, a randomized control trial looking at different bolus regimens that can be delivered periprocedurally um, uh, uh, that might have sort of differential impact on the, on, on the risk of post-GFP pancreatitis. But just from a practical point of view, um, and of course, you know, just to mention that, that there are strong preclinical and randomized control trial evidence uh, to, to support the use of lactated ringers over normal saline in this context. So that's basically been, you know, our go-to. And so for me in a young, healthy patient, and again, this is not evidence-based because it doesn't sort of emulate the randomized control trials, um, but there's a cogent, you know, sort of rationale for yeah. it. But, but in my approach, my approach to a young, healthy patient that's not at risk in principle for volume overload or sodium retention or anything along those lines, 
I would typically give them about three liters of LR periprocedurally. Mm-hmm. And that starts, you know, during the procedure. And I'll, right. when, once I sense that the risk is high, I'll ask the anesthesiologist or CRNA to just start running the LR wide open. And so we'll give them three liters periprocedurally. And then um, if they are admitted to the hospital with pain, then I would typically continue somewhere between 250 and 350 an hour, mm-hmm. honestly, until we can assess them the next morning. Um, of course, you know, f- following reasonably closely to make sure they're not getting overloaded. Um, but yeah, you know, like in a young, healthy 25 year old uh, with um, recurrent acute pancreatitis who has a hard ERCP with a pancreatic sincterotomy and everything else. Yeah, I typically would err on the side of being really aggressive, mm-hmm. recognizing that, um, you know, that emerging evidence might might sort of modify that approach mm-hmm. for me. Along those lines of patients who are in your recovery room after an outpatient ambulatory ERCP, do you think we miss people with posterior sphincter pancreatitis often, meaning we send them home, uh, we give them um, a, a small dose of some kind of analgesic at the end of the procedure, or maybe even recovery? Oh, you're feeling good two, two, three hours later. We send, do you think we miss people or you think we're catching them pretty well? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to know the, the number, right? It's hard to know what sort of the denominator is and, 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 you know, how many of those, um, could have been quote unquote salvaged or prevented if, you know, if we had a more sort of programmatic approach to admitting high-risk patients and mm-hmm. watching them closely and giving them IV fluids. So it's, it's hard to know what the magnitude of the problem is. And I think our ongoing SVI trial will be able to clarify that to some extent because we are collecting those data. Um, but there's no doubt that in terms of individual patients, there's no doubt that we miss patients. And there's no doubt that sometimes, in, at least in concept, that might affect the natural history of their disease. And, and by the way, just going back, that's part of my rationale for giving them a full three liters periprocedurally is because if they feel okay and they happen to go home and they come back to the ER at midnight, the likelihood is, is that they're going to be under resuscitated, right? Because typically in that context, people don't think of aggressive, you know, in the ER setting or in sort of the community hospital setting, they don't think of aggressive IV fluids the way we do. So the likelihood is that they'll be under resuscitated. And I like the fact that we're a little bit ahead of the eight ball by virtue of getting a lot of fluid on board. Again, not evidence-based, but at least, you know, it it makes some sense. So I do think we're missing patients. Um, But, you know, the question is, how often is it happening? And does it justify at a sort of more uh, systematic approach to admitting patients. My sense is that, um, and, and you know, there's a bunch of, you know, sort of post-RSP pancreatitis risk calculators in development, right. and that's right. going to be important. And one of the goals of our randomized control trial is to develop a biorepository. And at least the thing that the, the concept in which I'm most interested is in discovering a biomarker for this, because, it, you know, it would be ideal if you could draw blood in a high-risk patient who's feeling well before discharge. And if they, you know, if, if they, you know, if the biomarker looks good, then they're at low risk for post RSP pancreatitis. And people try that to some extent with, with amylase levels and so forth. Um, but, but I don't know the right answer, but our practice to your point. So I do think we're missing people. Our practice is if they, even if it's a high risk case and they're feeling well and they look well, um, you know, we typically send them out after that bolus. Um, but it'd be, it'd be nice to have a better way to stratify which patients just need to stay, even though they're, they're feeling well. Yeah. I thought I saw a study by, uh, by you and Greg Cote. Uh, I know Greg was on as part of this. I can't remember who else where, where you, you looked at, you know, even one dose of a narcotic, uh, post-procedure, 
um, if I remember correctly, really escalates your risk of, of you know, requiring admission and having posterior speed pancreatitis. Does that ring a bell or am I? Um, so it doesn't, you know, so keeping up, keep, and I may have been on that paper, but keeping up with, uh, <laughs> Greg, Greg Cote it's tough to keep up with Greg incredible Cote. productivity can, yeah, uh, it's... can be hard from time to time. Um, so, so off the top of my head, I'm not remembering that, but just conceptually, it makes sense, right? right. I mean, there's no doubt. And by the way, John, there's probably a bunch of patients who go home and just have pancreatitis at home. That's and, what I think. You know, and, and suck it up. And, and, and as long as they're not going to develop systemic inflammatory response and necrose their pancreas, it's probably okay. And so from that point of view, it's not the worst thing in the world for them to go home on a little bit of analgesic. It's just that the, the patient that ends up um, whose natural history of pancreatitis ends up being affected by that sort of whatever it is, 12 hour um, uh, absence of clinical care. Right. That's the one we want to capture. But there's no doubt that we're covering up some pancreatitis in some people, most of whom, in most of whom it's likely to be mild. But in some, um, it probably is, um, it probably is, uh, you know, uh, influencing what ultimately happens with their yeah. pancreatitis. Yeah. Well, we have to, we have to wrap up, but I want to, before we wrap up, I want to just final, I ask you one final question, just get your thoughts, uh, Joe, on, you know, where we are as a whole with uh, posterior speed pancreatitis prevention. I mean, there's no doubt that your landmark study 10 years ago, you know, has changed the field, but is that enough? Um, you know, where are we in the, in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. Yeah. So John, I think about this all the time and I know we have to wrap up, but I, the short answer is it's, it's not enough. I mean, you know, the last 15 years or so um, in this space have been really exciting, right? You know, so uh, NSAIDs came around, IV fluids came around. I think we're a little bit better at patient selection. Um, there's no doubt that we are employing, especially with the widespread diffusion of, of MRCP and endoscopic ultrasound, we're better and at deploying ERSP is an exclusively therapeutic procedure. So, so all that has come to fruition. But you know, as I mentioned at, at the you know at the beginning of the podcast, this is still a big problem in clinical practice. And and again, it's the most important iatrogenic iatrogenic complication in my practice, right? In terms of you know uh, stress and bandwidth and and you know the impact on patients and so forth. So I, I I think there's no doubt that in some ways we've helped the problem, but I don't think we're we're I don't think we're, we're we need to be particularly in light of this phenomenon of sort of uh, reduced use of prophylactic pancreatic stenting. So I think we could certainly do a better job in terms of you know, deploying the interventions that we have available to us, right? Using prophylactic stents. Even if you look at the data for rectal NSAIDs, which in principle is so easy to do. Right. If you look at high-risk cohorts, um, there are a lot of patients uh, at high risk who are not, not who are not getting rectal NSAIDs. So we could do a better job with the the stuff we have now, but but we need to we need a game changer in our field. We need to completely mm-hmm. rethink how we do research. And just sort of real briefly, one of the things that's been disappointing is our approach to pharmacal prevention. You know, for which I'm completely guilty because I did exactly this. But what we typically do for pharmacal prevention is we find an agent that seems to be promising, and then we say, okay, well let's do a randomized control trial, right? But any randomized control trial to show a meaningful benefit um, requires, and you know, even among high-risk patients, requires about a thousand patients. Enormous right? number of patients. Enormous number. And so what we end up doing is figuring out a rationale to do a smaller randomized control trial. And most of those end up being negative. And that may be because the medication doesn't work, or maybe because of a type two statistical error, meaning so failure to show a, an effect where one did exist. 
uh, but ultimately end up being uninformative. And our literature is full of these studies. And that's a lot of patients who have who've, you know, committed to doing research. That's a lot of time, effort, cost. And we're not really making any progress. And so for me, I think the, the, the next big step in the field is to rethink how we do pharmacoprevention research um, and to refocus on what are, on proof of concept studies, basically to, to try to sort of do smaller studies that identify agents that are most likely to be beneficial in which we can justify the big time investment of time and money to, to study them in a meaningful way. Because there's a lot of agents that are on the market and certainly um, potential agents that could be developed that mechanistically could have a much bigger impact than rectal NSAIDs. We're just not doing a great job finding yeah. them and studying them. And so to me, you know, like I think if by the end of our career, there's not a, a, a pharmacopreventative agent or some combination that makes rectal NSAIDs completely obsolete because it's so much more effective, I think that would be a failure, you know, mm -hmm. on, on mm -hmm. my part, on our part. And, and so, you know, we've helped the problem, but, but we're not anywhere near solving it. And I think that's where we need to refocus our energy now. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I have no doubt that you're the person to, to change the way that we look at this for, uh, for RCTs at the very least as, as it is for posterior speed pancreatitis. So well, Joe, I can't, I Sorry, sorry. I just want to say I really appreciate, appreciate you saying that, but there's a lot of talented people now working in this space, and yeah. so I have a lot of optimism. Um, I have a lot of optimism around this. Good. Good. Hey, listen, I can't uh, thank you enough for taking the time to join us on the podcast, Joe. It's always great catching up with you. And uh, as always, uh, as I did at this year's DDW and previous ones, when I when I hear you uh, speak and, and talk on this topic and others, I always learn a lot. So I'm really appreciative for that. Thanks for saying that. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, it is always a pleasure hanging yeah. out with you. Yeah. Okay, listeners, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you next month on Listen In. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at asge.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.